The Panther and Cartier. Two destinies intertwine in a signature jewelry collection that is wild, fearless, and endlessly fascinating. Shop the Pontel de Cartier collection at Cartier.com. Happy Saturday. It is April 24th, 2020, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. Hi, Ashley. This is Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. It's so great to be here with you, Michael. It's great to be here. I just watched, as you did, the Michael Kors show uh, uh, live streamed, right? Michael, you are such a fashion guy. You can't help yourself. Yes, we watched the Michael Kors show live together on Instagram. It was very 2021 of us. Uh, uh, a lot of and fun. I have to say, it was it was amazing. He did it all shot on the streets of Broadway at the evening with all the, you know, his, for his 40th anniversary, he had Rufus Wainwright singing. And I have to confess, when Rufus started singing the Billy Joel song, New York State of Mind, I got all choked up. Did you? Shocker, Michael. You got choked up. I kind of did too. I did too. I just thought it was that New York State of Mind song. Even in great times, it makes you sort of so in love with New York. And then to hear it sung with that sort of, with with all we've gone through in the back in the last year, super uh, moving. And I just think there's this sense that we feel New York coming back. I saw another small little good element of that. The other day, the announcement that Bellman's Bar up at the Carlisle Hotel is reopening on May 1st. So these elements of our New York life that we cherish and have missed springing back. I've been listening to my new favorite song, by the way. Ready? I'm going to play it for you. Jesse, can you pull this up? Are we saying, hey, Michael, American Psycho? Okay, well, you're not an American Psycho, but it's a really great song. It's uh, by a wonderful new musician out of Los Angeles. She's a 22-year-old jazz school dropout. She's a singer and a multi-instrumentalist. She just released this great single called Hey Michael, which I love not only because it reminds me of you, but also because it is definitely an earworm. Uh, Her name is Wallace... W-A-L-L-I-C-E. Anyway, you can find her on Spotify, but it's a great new song. And I'm getting in my summer jam state of mind, Michael. This is just the first of many. Get ready. All right. We can have your playlist then. Mm, Maybe. Uh, Well, we have one hell of an issue for you this week, Michael. We have one hell of an issue. If we have one hell of an issue, we've got one hell of a show. (laughs) Okay. Let's try to live up to it. You know what I was thinking? I mean, we strangely have a, let's remember, Sunday is Oscar night. We've got kind of a, you know, movie-themed uh, sort of issue in, a, in But Michael, let, let's get to this delicious issue. Delicious. Take us, where, we, where do you want to begin? All right, Michael, you edited A Real Whale of a Story this week by Doug McGrath. He has a profile of Bodie Boatwright, the force of nature casting agent who has been behind some of the biggest movie and stage careers of all time. How did this come together? Well, it's uh, like all things that relate to Hollywood. It's sort of like, you know, it's a little bit friendship. It's a little bit business. And uh, Bodie, for many people who don't work in Hollywood or Broadway probably don't know Bodie, but but in, in one of those two circles, she's a legend. Bodie Boatwright, she's for 60 years, she's been the force behind some of the biggest movies and stage careers. And then for many years, she got into agenting and was 
Doug's agent. She, one of those people who's just lived the most amazing life. And in this issue, Doug sort of sits down with her and pulls it all together. She got her start in casting. She cast, the first thing she ever cast was To Kill a Mockingbird. And she found, at the time, she was, she petitioned Alan Pakula, the director who had optioned the, the book to, uh, she said, I come from the South. I know those kids. I know Scout. I know Jem. I can find those kids for you. And that's what she did. She went back down to the South and, uh, called up her friends who and said, I'm looking for these kids. And she she met these kids and found them. And then, of course, she, through a tip later, she found Robert Duvall for Boo Radley as well. So, and then she she goes on to cast... God, Robert Duvall was Boo Radley? Yeah. So she goes on to then cast Fiddler on the Roof, The Man Who Would Be King, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Genius. Uh, yeah. She works with basically every big director in the 70s. Everyone from, like I say, Alan Pakula to Norman Jewison, Sidney Lumet, Jonathan Demme. And then she gets into the studio, works alongside people like Sherry Lansing. So just one of these wonderful forces of nature. And also, if you know her in New York, she's one of the great kind of conversationalists and storytellers. And this is just a real testament to her her genius and her influence across pop culture. This is a long piece by Doug and it's worth every minute of reading. So sit down, refill your coffee and savor it. Yeah. And another piece we've got this issue that's a great, long, wonderful dive. Also movie related on our little sort of like mini, I guess, you know, sort of in, in, in nod to the Oscars this week, but just lovely, unforgettable piece by Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger. And it's about when Charlie Chaplin returned to America. And it was almost 50 years ago in 1972. Chaplin, who had sort of been exiled from America in the 50s, living in Switzerland, was brought back to Hollywood to receive an honorary Oscar. And uh, you probably, uh, if you've ever seen this, he came on stage. He again had not been in Hollywood. The man who basically helped invent Hollywood returns to Hollywood after he'd been sort of cast aside by the American public. And he receives a 12 minute standing ovation. If you ever want to see, just look it up on YouTube. It'll leave you on the edge of tears. But what's not really known, and this is what Sam and Nancy get into in their story, is when he was brought back to America, he was uh, sort of shepherded here by three of his close women in his life. One was his wife, Una Chaplin, uh, who was the daughter of Eugene O'Neill, a playwright. The other was Carol Matthau, who was the wife of Walter Matthau, and then also Gloria Vanderbilt. So the focus of this piece is Carol Matthau throws a garden party in Los Angeles the night before the Oscars. And Chaplin comes there. And 93 of Hollywood's greatest people at the time were all sort of clamoring to get in to see Chaplin and pay their respects to him. Carol and Walter picked 93 people from Henry Fonda to Groucho Marx, and they all come there. And if you ever want to see, there's photographs, not of this, but of, of that, that weekend shot by Candace Bergen, who was on assignment for Life magazine. So it's just a brilliant, lovely love letter to Chaplin at this period in his time when he sort of say, comes back to Hollywood. Uh, the town rises up to thank him for everything he did to basically create this art form. And uh, it's it's a beautiful, unseen look into an amazing story. Michael, let's pivot away from Hollywood for just a minute. Did you see this story in the Times of London about 
the armies of ladybugs that have been recruited by civic authorities in Rome. Oh, is this for the uh, for the to save the um, the pine trees? Indeed, I love this story because I love those pine trees that you see in, in around Rome and in southern Italy, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a deadly parasite that has been eating away at Italy's umbrella pines, but in Rome there is a chance that this parasite has met its match. So it's called a, a pine tortoise scale insect, and it's been sucking up all of the sap uh, for the past five years after these little buggers arrived in Naples in 2015. And they were especially well-fed in Rome because Mussolini had planted a a lot of these trees sort of as a way to nod back to the city's storied past. Anyway, six neighborhood associations have decided to fight back. And so they have gathered up this bug's natural enemy, the ladybug, and released them into the wild to wreak havoc. So there is a war of sorts playing out in the streets and trees of Rome. You know what else is playing out in the streets of Rome? They're filming, Ridley Scott is filming House of Gucci. Oh, of course. No, I mean, I'm following this story like you wouldn't even believe, Michael. Now, there's been some drama with the Gucci family. Patricia Gucci has come out very much against this and said, you know, she was really offended by the casting. First of all, like everyone that we love is in this. Al Pacino, Adam Driver, Lady Gaga, Jared Leto, Camille Cotin, who plays Andrea Martel in Call My Agent, which is, of course, an incredible TV series out of France. Jack Houston, Jeremy Irons, Salma Hayek. I mean, the list goes on and on. But this casting is not enough for Patrizia Gucci. Uh, she was horribly offended and she has hit out against Ridley Scott, calling the casting, quote, horrible, horrible and ugly. If that's ugly, I don't want to be beautiful, honestly. Um, My favorite quote is, she goes after Al Pacino, who is playing Maurizio. And let's just remind our listeners, the sort of central drama of this Gucci family story. Lady Gaga plays Patrizia Reggiani, who has an affair with Maurizio Gucci, who's played by Adam Driver. But apparently Patrizia doesn't think so much of Al Pacino. She says he's being played by Al Pacino, who is not very, very tall already. And the photo shows him as fat, short, and si- with sideburns. Really ugly. So Ouch. how do you really feel? Okay, well, Michael, you and I both worked on a story this week about the next act for one of Hollywood's legends. I wrote it. You edited it. Together, we make the dream team. It's Angelica Houston. Yeah. Did a beautiful profile of her and her new move into the the art world, really, right? Taking up pottery, right? Yeah. Ceramics, I should say. Yeah, taking up ceramics. Well, let's hear from Angelica. She'll tell us all about it. Following the footsteps of the Cartier Panther with the Pontaire de Cartier jewelry collection, a creative signature of the Maison, The Cartier Panther has been reinvented time and time again since her first sighting in 1914. Magnetic, feline, and wild. She is a force to be reckoned with, evolving with each design. Unbox the newest pieces in the Pontaire de Cartier collection at Cartier.com. So, Angelica, first of all, happy spring. Thank you. And where do we find you today? We find me on my bed in the Pacific Palisades in Southern California. Well, there are worse places to be. It's very beautiful. I just came back from St. Bart's a few days ago. Um, So short of St. Bart's, it's, it's a lovely place to be. Yeah. Where have you spent most of the past pandemic year? I've mostly been up at my ranch in Three Rivers, which is 
it sounds very glamorous to say up north, but it's actually at the other end of the Central Valley farmland, quite near the Sequoias, the Sequoia National Park. And um, I bought a farm there in the early 80s, maybe about 85. And it was like a little dirt pile when I first bought it. So it's been my pleasure to kind of contribute to it over the years. I have lots of animals and it's like an old McDonald's farm. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Are you one of those people who secretly enjoyed the stay home aspect of the pandemic? I have to tell you, I had the best time. And the the lack of guilt over not working was <laughs> So thrilling. Usually, I don't know. I think it's because I had one of those fathers that, that pushed me. And I remember once saying to him that, you know, I really would like to be a lady of leisure. And his it registered with such disgust that I've <laughs> I've been guilty about leisure ever since um, until it came to pandemic year. And yeah, I have to say I've been having a, a well of the time. How have you been passing these long hours at home? Ceramics have entered my life with a passion. It, it was something that I couldn't have considered before, say, four or five years ago, um, because I was married to a world-class sculptor, and it was inconceivable that that I would take up sculpting. Um, but since since Robert, his name is Robert Graham, since Robert passed, um, I don't know. His his ghost visits me from time to time and kind of eggs me on <laughs> to be a little braver than I than I naturally would have found myself. Well, you have some really amazing. Well, what was the first piece that you made? What was your first ceramic adventure? My first adventure was a, a seated woman sitting on her heels, naked, sort of clay colored, and I didn't think much of her until. Until quite recently, when I looked at her and thought, that's really not bad. And that's sort of how, how it's presented itself to me. A little bit like someone else is doing it. Um, I, I didn't accept responsibility for it for a while. And I think that's the best way to work, really, when, when you don't hold yourself hostage um, and allow it just to happen. I'd always had an interest in, in pottery and ceramics and particularly in how to make the perfect bowl. It seemed to me like that was a really good thing to start on. And I guess I'd done, I'd done a few bowls, mostly hand-built um, pinch bowls. And that was satisfying up to a point. And then I... I suddenly started to do these little women. They're magnificent. Thank you so much. They're quite small, but they have presence, I think. I started them um, about two years after Bob died. And uh, I'd been doing a, a show called Smash in New York. And although I love New York, I'm not really a New Yorker. I crave the country and I'm happiest when I'm kind of by myself in nature. Um, and... I came back to Los Angeles and I think I just sort of atrophied for a couple of years. So around the corner from my house on Windward Avenue in Venice, there was a, a very nice, quite small yoga studio called Surya Yoga. And I started to go there. They were just mostly women in the class. And so it was just women being women. And I liked the shapes. Some were stretching their legs. Others might be in a, a lotus position, but none of them were really thinking about a pose. 
They were just in their bodies and found it kind of inspiring. You know, not that it registered as inspiring, but it made me want to, to interpret that somehow. So I got hold of some clay and I started to make these little women. And um, I was quite surprised initially, as I said, by that first woman, I thought, huh, you know, it's not so bad. I think I'll go on with this. And I joined a studio that was run by a girl called Maytal, who'd been my makeup artist on several occasions. And she had a studio on, on La Brea and Melrose. And she said, come over, you know, and, and you can work out at my studio and see how you like it. So uh, that's kind of how it all started up. Was Bob in your head at all as you were working? Um, yes, because I have quite, quite a few of his pieces, some large, some not so large, some very small. Um, and it's kind of a way of keeping him with me. And when I look at his pieces, it's not a competitive thing. I, I, it's simply that sometimes it's easier to do stuff like like art in general when when someone set an example. I remember many years ago I was auditioning for the part of Tamara de Lempica in um, in a show uh, about Tamara called Tamara. Um, in Los Angeles. And it wasn't until I saw the actress who was playing it that I really felt I knew what I wanted to do in my audition. That's a little bit how, how I feel about the clay pieces, that somehow he set me off. He inspired me, Bob. And now you have a show up at Pamela Barish and it's called 10 Zen Women. Is that right? Right. And offered to give me a show on, uh, in her store, actually. And so this was maybe three years ago and turned out people like these. And I, I had a few sales, which was exciting because I'd never imagined that that would happen. I was mostly doing things for myself just as a kind of exercise. And, and that, that was, I love making money. <laughs> so, so even though it's not my main gig, there's something very sort of flattering and sweet about people buying these things. So I thought, well, that's nice. I'll go on doing it. And at least it'll pay for my habit. So it allowed me to buy a wheel and get a kiln and set up a little studio of my own. I have a sort of, I think, again, it comes from my father and his disdain for fly-by-night artistry and libertyism. <laughs> I, I didn't want to just buy everything straight off, all of these um, all of these tools and, and, you know, expensive instruments until I knew that I really wanted to do this and I wanted to continue with it. So I sort of hesitated before I, I set up a studio. Well, it's very Gen Z of you. You now have a respectable side hustle. I know. Isn't that good? <laughs> Great. Yeah. So as we emerge from lockdown, you have this, you know, burgeoning second career, but are you excited to get back to the theater and to doing film and television and, you know, your normal job? What, where are you at in that headspace? 
Um, I, I am, you know, although it's really hard, um, especially as I find myself shockingly on the brink of 70 years old. And most of the parts out there are, uh, you know, either for uh, people afflicted with not just with old age, but also with Alzheimer's and cancer. And I wish people would invent a new sort of eventuality for women of a certain age. I don't know why it always has to fall into these categories. Hollywood needs to catch up with reality because I was talking to Graydon yesterday and he put it as succinctly as I've ever heard it. He said, men age like milk and women age like wine. And he thinks, and I agree with him, that women in this stage of your life that you're talking about are actually at their prime. Whereas you look at most men that are approaching 70 and they're frequently on the golf course and kind of done, right? But look I at agree. You. Well, thank you. Um, I, I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> And I also appreciate Graydon for that, who's a, a man who's aging like wine, I should say, or a fine port. Fine port, even better. Um, have you been watching any good movies or TV shows during lockdown that we should know about? You really shouldn't know about my affection for a series called 90 Day Fiancé, which I, for some reason I find riveting. Um, <laughs> Love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say no more on that account. Reality TV, I'm afraid. I'm a fool for it. I still like those horrible housewives. <laughs> Which season? I still like those horrible housewives. I particularly like New Jersey and it just goes on getting better. I'm a bit obsessed actually, especially with Teresa. Oh, right. Is she the one whose husband has been deported? Uh-huh. Guducci. Got it. And, uh, yeah, her facial augmentation alone, I, I find it really fascinating. But she's sweet. And that's sort of what I like about those shows. They're, there's a level of kind of innocence about her that I like. We need to write a show about, wait, I've got it. A marvelous actress, a legend of stage and screen who reinvents herself during lockdown as a magnificent sculptor and potter. What do you think? Well, aren't you brilliant? I would watch that. <laughs> Uh, that's so sweet. That's lovely of you to say so. Well, Angelica, I will let you get back to the wheel because I know you've got a lot going on, but thank you so much for speaking with us. And we're so happy to have you in airmail. I'm so happy to be with you. It's been a joy. Have a wonderful day. Thank you again. God bless. Thank you. All right, Michael. Well, Angelica is making me feel lazy. I need to develop a new hobby and ideally an alternative source of revenue. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, have you been painting... I have not been painting, but I'm going to start again, dear. Were you inspired by Angelica or was this something you had planned? I need to find a new studio. So if anyone out there has a studio. All right, guys, hit him up on the gram. He's ready. He'd be a good one to share a studio with. He makes good coffee. I do make good. I make great coffee. He never eats and never has a smelly lunch. You're good with that. Very respectable. He'll probably be done painting by the time you show up since he gets up at four o'clock in the morning and, and does all this work. Uh, so yeah, actually, you're kind of an ideal studio mate. It's like you're writing a singles profile for me, which I don't need. But you know, Henry Alford this week has a very funny one of his what ifs that he does for us. And his what if this week is what if the queen enters the dating scene? Can you see her with anyone? I can't. But while uh, Henry in his inimitable 
I don't know if that's on a band word list in his great style. I'll just read one of them. They're all very funny. But the first one, you know, he just sort of does this kind of uh, month by month conjecture of what should be if she'd be on the single scene. And it begins with April 2021. Queen's first attempt at posting a Tinder profile incites 25 comments that read, take off the hat, love. <laughs> He's so good. He's so funny. Yeah. So there you go. That's too much. Well, Michael, do you have anything at all you could recommend to us? Uh, I have one thing I want to recommend. Maybe I mean, maybe I was in the old Hollywood frame of mind, but over the weekend, there's a new book that came out, which actually we review this week in the issue. Sam Wasson, who also wrote a great Hollywood book recently, he wrote the, the Big Goodbye, Chinatown and the Last Years of Hollywood, which came out one of my favorite books of last year. Anyway, he reviewed a new book about Billy Wilder and Billy Wilder before he came to Hollywood and directed so many of our favorite movies was a newspaper reporter and writer in Weimar Berlin and uh, interwar Vienna. And uh, there's a new book that's collected his writings. Anyway, it made me think of Wilder over the weekend. And I remembered to watch a film of his, which I'd never seen. And he made this in 1958, sort of sandwiched between Sabrina and Some Like It Hot. And it's one of his kind of lesser known films, but it's fantastic. It's an adaptation of an Agatha Christie play and book, a story called Witness for the Prosecution. And uh, have you ever seen it? I have not. Okay. Fantastic movie. It stars Tyrone Power, Marlena Dietrich, Charles Lawton, and it has probably one of the great last 10 minutes is a courtroom drama. Tyrone Powers accused of murder. Marlene Dietrich is his wife. Charles Lawton, who, if you've never seen him in a film, I highly recommend you watch. He was, I always remember this, no less than Daniel Day-Lewis credits Lawton as one of his main inspirations on what he loves about actors and, and, and what he learned from acting by watching Lawton. And Lawton gives so many great moments in this film. But anyway, it's got one of the twists upon twists of surprise endings for a courtroom drama murder mystery. So check it out. Will do. That's a great one. Thank you. And you, my dear? Well, indeed, I have a book for you. Now, if you, like me, were a young woman coming of age in Massachusetts, you probably developed a love of three things. Sylvia Plath, Anne Sexton, Dunkin' Donuts Coffee. Two of those are addressed in a new book by Gail Crawther called Afternoon at the Ritz, The Rebellion of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Now, Crawther writes an inside story for us in airmail this week about the research process looking back at this book. And she was listening to Sexton and Plath voices a lot, recordings of them going through their personal effects. She writes about that in airmail, but I was so intrigued that I felt the need to read the book. So thank you to Julia, one of our fabulous books editors for sending me the galley. It just came out on Tuesday. And it's really fascinating for anyone that's sort of marginally interested even in this period of literary history. I did not know this. Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton were part of the Beacon Hill coterie of intellectuals in Boston in the 1950s. But what I didn't know is they both audited a class at Boston University that was taught by Robert Lowell. So the two of them took to going to the Ritz Hotel after class on Tuesday afternoons. Class ended at 4. Martini time started at 4.15. And they had a really interesting, albeit brief, relationship of two intellectuals who whose legacies have often been intertwined, whether they wanted that to be the case or not. So it's a really fun look back at, you know, this era of feminist literary history in the 1950s and what and how these two poetesses uh, were both similar and very different. All right. So I want to challenge you. Oh, God. Yes. Are we going to just have one Oscar prediction? Do you... <sighs> 
Do you want to pick your your winner for best picture? You want me to read you the nominees? Okay, Michael, because I know we'll start with you, Michael, because I know I know you can't help yourself. <laughs> yes, what? I need you to give us some Oscar predictions. If you're wrong, it's okay. We won't hold it against you. Okay, so let's like best picture. We've got the nominees are the father. Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. And your money's on? My prediction is the Oscar goes to, I think the Oscar should go to Minari. Mm-hmm. And I think it will go to Sound of Metal. Really? Yeah, it's a dark horse, but I just, I don't know. Okay, I was going to put my money on Nomadland. Mm-hmm. Look, you've got Francis McDormand. You've got a very, like, Nomadland is very newsy, right? All the, everything that we're hearing about Amazon, like, it feels very much like a, a movie of the moment. And then you have Francis McDormand between the two of those. I would agree with you. And I think, I think that Chloe Zhao, the director, I, I think she'll win for best director because it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully shot. It's inventively directed how she put it together. I think, you know, she's, she's very admired right now in Hollywood. Her, her star is just ascending. Yeah. Now I do think that we're going to have Yu Jung Yoon for Minari win in the actress in a supporting role category. Competition is stiff, but she's blown everyone away. She won at the BAFTA. She won at the SAG Awards. She'll take the Oscars too. That's my prediction. Mm. Any other predictions? Mm. I want to look at the screenplay um, category. Hold on just a sec, because I think I have a prediction for that. Here we go. My bet for original screenplay for writing, Promising Young Woman by Emerald Fennell. What do you think? You know what's so funny about Promising Young Woman if you haven't seen it? Okay, yesterday... I mean, I love that movie. And yesterday, FaceTime with my mother, as I do every night. And she's like, oh, I got to tell you about the best movie I just saw. Mind you, my mother is north of 80, right? But she sees everything. <laughs> she sees everything. She's like, have you seen Promising Young Woman? I love that she I love you this. You're like, this is my job, mom. Yes. She's like, I love this movie. So she's like... I, She's like, you know, sometimes men just have to have some revenge taken on them. I am Emerald Fennell, super fan. I've been trying to get her on the show ever since we launched the show. Emerald, I know you're busy, but come on, call us because like we got to talk, especially if you win, even especially if you lose. I don't care. We just need to talk to you because I love you. I loved you in Call the Midwife. I loved you in The Crown. Everything you've done is genius. Do we need to remind everyone that you were a showrunner for... Killing Eve. Killing Eve. Yeah, she's pretty brilliant. She's pretty brilliant. We need to go to London right away, Michael. Need her. Let's let's get that expense approved and we'll go. All right, Michael. Well, I better start planning my outdoors socially distanced Oscars party. We'll just all watch it on our phones while we drink wine and eat popcorn. Okay. All Speaking right. of outdoors, should I read us out? Please do. Absolutely. But first, thank you to our sponsor this week, Cartier. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is A Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thank you for listening.